Welcome back after a political break to Political OD. It's episode 26. Nice to be back, Owen. Nice to see you, David. Uh, sort of, it's been a quietish summer, hasn't it? Uh, I mean, COVID has kind of rumbled along in the background, but without any real decisions being taken since the beginning of summer on, on restrictions. I mean, there have been a few, but I think largely people have just been out and about and getting on with life. Yeah, it's almost as if everybody's taking a break from decision making as well as um, school and, and whatever else. Yeah, we've seen a little bit of progress on that front, but it's been it's been kind of a quiet spell in, in terms of uh, politicians. The protocol, uh, it had gone particularly quiet before the summer because the grace periods have been pushed back until October. Well, after a short period of mild panic, I think we're going to probably see extension of grace periods again. Uh, we've just had the announcement from the British government that they are not going to put in any declarations or any requirements to do any paperwork to send anything over to GB. And I'm just getting the feeling that a lot of these impositions that are consequential to the protocol will in fact get pushed back time and again until after next year's assembly election. That seems to be the way that things are going to go. And there's a little bit of uh, positioning again as we're into September and this deadline is looming once again, but we haven't really heard anything since the uh, government uh, published its command paper at the start of the summer. And I suppose while that was worthwhile kind of exercise and it put forward some sort of pragmatic solutions to some of the the issues that the protocol poses, it didn't really broach the, the kind of constitutional issues that it brings up. And there was looming in the background uh, this problem that the EU were probably going to agree to it. So then we had the, the kind of focus of the, the, the government said that they weren't prepared at that time to trigger Article 16, even though the conditions existed yeah. to, to trigger it. So will it be any different now that we're into negotiations to extend grace periods or will that uh, will, will that happen for a few months and we push things even further down the line and don't get the grips with the, the real problems that it's causing? And I know um, that for the first time, really, we've seen an estimate from, from Esmond Burney as to how expensive that might be proving for Northern Ireland's economy. I think he said it was uh, to the tune of, you know, £850 million a year, so the guts of a, a billion pounds, really, which in the context of Northern Ireland is a, is a huge sum of money. Well, also and greater any, than any indication of increased uh, trade with the Republic, which has been sort of bandied about in the in the newspapers over the summer as if things were going swimmingly well. I, I think part of that article was just to say, uh, hang on a minute, let's look at real numbers rather than speculative ideas about uh, about whether trade is up or down, because we we can't from the figures honestly tell what's happening out there. Yeah, well, he, he looked at as well at the kind of veracity of the of the figures in, in terms of um, sort of uplift in trade between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And I mean, it, if you chat to any kind of economist who, who knows about these things, they will be absolutely clear that, um, you know, when when trade when trade is diverted, that that is not going to be something that in the short term is going to be beneficial to to the region. Uh, in question so that this uh, this idea that uh, it was going to be a great boon to us because there was going to be a diversion in trade was always a very disingenuous or argument i don't think anybody really believes that that offsets 
the problems that we have with our with our supply chains chains from Great Britain and uh, higher prices and everything else. And I mean, even if it were to prove um, a benefit in some ways, that's almost besides the point because there is still this question of our of our place in the, in the United Kingdom and how that works with uh, an internal market that that's been uh, basically split up. Because I think the argument is that that we do not want an advantage over our fellow countrymen in GB. We just want a level playing field and to be treated the same. For all the economic arguments, though, the the one that seems to be cutting through is just that political one of if they if everything's delayed until after next May, the realities of the protocol won't be apparent to the public, uh, yeah. and perhaps it will still retain that. Uh, what the EU would regard perhaps as a pro-protocol majority in the Northern Ireland Assembly, and it won't do too much damage to those who uh, would be uh, very much uh, Europhiles. I mean, I, I suppose it works both ways, because you could look at it um, in, in two ways. I, it, per, perhaps you could say that it's giving a, the protocol an opportunity to bed down and that people will become accustomed to you know its provisions and 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 see that the world's not ending and and all the rest of it and so you could argue it from that kind of pro protocol position you could also say that these grace periods have now been in place for the best part of a year they might see out the year and the single market is it under any uh, tremendous pressure from you know the rogue products pouring in from northern ireland I, I don't think so. So what is the purpose then of these uh, punishing provisions? Why would they inflict them on us when, when they're not uh, suffering any injuries from the, the deferment of the, of the protocol so far? So, Well, that's surely always an argument that the British government could have brought from the outset, which is basically, if you believe that there's a risk to the single market, tell us what it is, you know, show us what that risk is, because I don't think they're I think quite obviously there is no risk to the single market from from uh, Northern Ireland goods flowing between GB and NI. Uh, I think it's just, a, a, as you say, it's a political fantasy uh, and a political uh, brick to be able to uh, both pressurise the UK government in never-ending negotiations uh, and a fantasy that simply suits everybody to, to keep engaged. If the command paper did one useful thing, it was to call back to this... Um this idea of being at risk and goods being at risk of entering the single market, because that was what it was supposed to be all about in the first instance. And I mean, the, the, the command paper was quite good at pointing out that the protocol then became something that applied to basically every movement of goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, whether or not it was at risk of entering uh, the EU, because the EU takes this kind of rather circular approach that if it's not not at risk it's at risk okay. if you know what i mean so it's <clears> a precautionary principle that is yeah it's, precautionary it's legalistic it's senseless and it doesn't actually reflect risk in the real world that the idea that there isn't any room for pragmatism there is is just uh it's so silly as to be beyond belief really well, while there's no resolution the protocol will play a continued part of debate particularly within the unions community, I think that's where the issue is really taken a hold. Uh, and obviously, it's something that the DUP will have to look at in terms of its election programme going forward uh, into next year. 
after the past uh, few days, policing and legacy is also now going to be part of Jeffrey's entry, if it wasn't already. How do you deal with policing and legacy? Yeah, well, the, we've had the publication of, of um, this review into policing in, in South Armagh this week, and the sort of outcome of that is that republicanism is setting the agenda on these issues, and I mean, that's something that unionism is going to have to get a handle on because uh, uh, individually you could pick out all the parts of the report that uh, were objectionable and and would be objectionable to unionists and the facilitation of almost pro-terror attitudes that it seemed to point to and the normalising of those attitudes. Um, But it also speaks to a kind of lack of of crafting that agenda or lack of input into that agenda from the unionist perspective. So again, if you're sort of critiquing the performance of the DUP as Northern Ireland's currently, as as Northern Ireland's biggest unionist party, um, that's going to shape how people see them and going into the next election. But you have both uh, DUP and UUP politicians sitting on the policing board. Uh, and whilst it's easy for Jim Allister to perhaps shout about if there's no confidence in, in the chief constable, uh, those members should resign. Obviously, TV doesn't have any representatives on the policing board, so it's an easy call uh, that for other parties to do something. But, but the other point to that is, and I think Doug Beattie this morning said he wouldn't be taking people because you've got to engage. But if that engagement is, is resulting in report after report that simply doesn't hold any credibility within the union's community and is being seen as the uh, bit by bit or you know, the, the, the steady erosion of anything uh, that reflects um, Britishness or, or, or is proportional uh, in the approach to the communities uh, in Northern Ireland, then what's the value of them being there? It really is a dilemma for uh, unionism that being in there is having no effect whatsoever, it would seem. Engagement is fine if you're actually making it purposeful, um, but not being there, if that sends a message, at least you've achieved something. Yeah, and I mean, the, the report was appalling and it reveals some very troubling attitudes um, in the place and among the sort of institutions that set uh, the weather for for uh, for society, really. But um, you can't say that it's come out of nowhere. I mean, this is a, a kind of a culture that has grown up right across uh, the, the, the public life, really. In, in, in Northern Ireland, it's um, an attitude that's kind of ingrained in the PSNI and in, in its leadership positions. So how has this been allowed to happen over the course of... Uh, of so many years. Um, what, what, what's the thinking within the PSNI? And we have to take this beyond beyond Simon Byrne because you know he didn't he didn't sit over in the report in, in all its aspects. But what brain box in the PSNI imagined that a a piece of survey work conducted by uh, a restorative justice group born out of South Armagh could be in any way regarded as a credible foundation for a report on policing in South Armagh. I, I just find that incredible. I, I mean, I think it's worth you know, setting out the facts about that, David, because, I mean, com- community restorative justice, and it's an, it's an organisation that probably won't mean a lot to a lot of people, and we have to be a bit careful because we're a small podcast, obviously, and, and 
with what we say. But I mean, this organization, uh, the, the former Taoiseach Garrett Fitzgerald certainly was very forthright in saying that it was uh, created by Sinn Féin. It's, it's just as simple as that. It was created by Sinn Féin as almost uh, an alternative to the PSNI when, when that organisation and, and the communities that it represented were not really on board with policing at all and, and weren't uh, cooperating uh, with the pillars of justice in, in, in this society. Mm-hmm. But it's its director is this guy Harry Maguire who who was convicted for those horrific corporal uh, murders of two corporals at a, an IRA funeral in Belfast that many people will remember from the eighties. Just an absolutely brutal and horrific incident that it's. Oh, but but what, what, what is also the other thing in that one is that Simon Byrne knows the difficulty with that because he was yes. he not criticised for holding a meeting with that man on Zoom almost defies belief that he would then go ahead and endorse this report. I mean, I've I've seen sort of various accounts of how deeply it was involved, but we certainly know that it um, produced the surveys and did the uh, did this apparent research for it. It, it's, uh, it seemed as well to be based on polling of reasonably small group however that uh, however that group was arrived at or what however methodology whatever methodology was used in in producing these or, surveys so i mean the fact that this is then it, it, it's given as a template not only for for policing in south armagh but but perhaps something to be rolled out more widely it really it that there are two there are two problems with it really and and the first is the cultural aspect and the fact that this is happening at all in the PSNI and the second is just the judgment of uh, the chief constable that thought that this report could be presented as a as a piece of uh, credible work. So the, there was a piece uh, I, I think it was uh, Julian Neal was reporting on on Twitter I think it was to, uh, earlier this afternoon that, that you know he had sort of said that uh, he decided that it was best to. Um, put out the report to let people see the full report as it was written. But as a as a communications guy, if if you knew that report was going out and you didn't accept all the recommendations, you would publish the report, but you would also then make a clear statement that certain recommendations in, within this have been considered as unacceptable and were not would and would not be taken forward. In other words, you would publish, but you would qualify, but. But that wasn't done. It was published without qualification and then sort of sweep up after you. I mean, that's just failure in communication, but it's also a failure in leadership. There's no such thing really as a failure of communication. At the end of the day, if there's a communication problem in an organisation, there's a management problem in an organisation. It was presented initially as if um, the chief constable... um, not only accepted it without qualification, but that he fully endorsed it, and also that it was already being put in, in place in, in many areas. So the, the idea that he can then disclaim responsibility for it the next day, again, is fairly laughable. And the fact is that even when he came out and fairly quickly distanced himself from the, this idea about um, repositioning some of the memorials, it was only partly a, a, a qualification of that because certainly left open the, the possibility that if new stations are built, that 
these uh, memorials would be hidden away so that the people who don't see the murder of a police officer as a terrible thing needn't be offended by the sight of the memorials. So the whole thing, it, apart from the content of it, which is awful, there's almost been an element of farce about the way that it has been presented and, and the aftermath as well. There remains all kinds of questions about the Chief Constable's leadership as well as the, the wider question about uh, the culture of the PSNI. But, but sadly, that has become a problem for unionist politicians. Uh, you know, and this is how these things seem to, to work. You know, the, the issue starts off, and it is, as you say, a serious problem within the PSNI in terms of leadership and in terms of direction. Uh, but it somehow becomes then a problem for unionism because there seems to be so little they can do to effect change. And, and that comes back to the agenda. And, and that is going to be both, both on protocol and policing. That is, is perhaps uh, relevant to the polls we've seen in the past week. There, there have been, uh, well, poll survey surveys. Uh, one, let's talk loyalism, which I think is a commendable effort to try and engage and, and to give some expression to views within a particular community. And I, I think people within that community should be commended for at least making that effort and, and being a bit ma- imaginative in, in taking that forward. I mean, it was fairly emphatic in its uh, rejection of, of DUP politics in wanting an end to the protocol in certainly support for, for consideration of, of uh, unions politicians just walking out of Stormont. I think it reflects frustration, if nothing else, uh, with the institutions, with the political parties, and not unnaturally, uh, support goes to uh, Jim Allister, TUV, uh, who is probably the best person expressing that frustration at the present time. I, I think that's a fair, without going into uh, much more, I think that's fair enough. And obviously then, um, the Lucid Talk polling for the Belfast Telegraph, uh, I have to say, you know, I think Lucid Talk has, has issues. I wouldn't have put as many issues against it until I heard Bill White on Monday on, 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 on the Nolan show. Which, but anyway, let, let's say that, that, that that poll was at least indicative of where the public is thinking at the moment. I, th- I think that's fair. I, I, you know, I've been out and about over the summer meeting, meeting people. And, and I, I think that the poll and indeed the, the Let's Talk Lawism, I think it just reflects where people are, within, particularly within the unionist community uh, at the present time and just how there is a shifting, and I think a very healthy debate about the future of unionism within the community overall. I think for a few years now, there's been a sense of disillusionment about the DUP and the direction that it's been heading and the leadership that it's provided. Um, And it just hasn't settled down into into an improvement for another party. And I mean, there's still... That this is uh, one poll, it's a lucid talk poll. Um, we can compare it against their previous polls, but um, you know, it, I, I think we still have to see where that disillusion with the, the DUP lands in the end of the day. Um, but it is a healthy thing that there, there's a debate going on and there's also a lot to be um, played for among the, the unionist parties, just simply because the leadership hasn't been great in, in recent years and the protocol has been a disaster. We're talking about other things like policing and and, uh, uh, and other issues which really haven't shown a, a kind of a, 
steady hand on the tiller from unionism. It looks as if they have a, a unionism hasn't really been shaping the, the top issues. So it's absolutely welcome to see that, that, that people are considering their options and are uh, thinking seriously about how they're going to vote in the next election. I think in terms of the numbers, I don't think we can be surprised that the frustrations uh, with the DUP would see the TV. I think Jim Alster is very good at articulating the frustrations within the unionist community, particularly on the protocol. Uh, and also in terms of, uh, you know, what, one of the issues I saw, I saw an article, I think it was on Slugger. Uh, someone had sort of said, oh, well, you know, and he was talking about the Let's Talk Loyalist poll. Uh, he was saying, this poll says they want to bring down Stormont. Well, I mean, the poll didn't say that. Leaving that aside, that's that's the frustration cutting through. And again, on Twitter, on social media, people saying this would be a disaster to bring, as the, as the Slugger article said, be a disaster to bring down Stormont. But the counter to that from a lot of people was what has Stormont actually achieved in the past 20 years? What has it actually done uh, and that's that, I didn't see anybody really come back and say this is the great achievement of Stormont. And, and really the only people who've actually achieved anything considerable in terms of, of on a union's point of view from agenda has been Jim Allister and to a certain extent. John McAllister. With John the, McAllister and, uh, and his opposition. Well, you know, and neither of those were actually in government or, a part, or, or in a party in government at the time that they pulled through those pieces of legislation. It, it's, a, it's interesting that, that you know, the, you've got the parties talking about taking things forward, but again, none of the unionist parties have really been good. Jim Alster being out on his own, he can, he can express frustrations, but he's never had to actually do anything. So he's got that advantage. The Ulster unionists are probably gaining a bit from the fairy factor, you know, uh, a man who can only annoy people when he comes in on Twitter. Uh, and I don't think he has been particularly great uh, in, in uh, reaching out and, and pulling in that, that middle unionism, particularly as there, I think many people are seeing the impact on, on, uh, on, on their, the cost of food, you know, uh, or, or the unavailability of goods, as we're finding with Marks and Spencer, who are, who are being the most prominent in saying, we're not doing. I think it's going to be baked beans on toast in Cherry Valley this Christmas. And the DUP, uh, we can't be surprised again that a party that was given such overwhelming support uh, on the protocol and particularly after RHI, people still back them up. Uh, and yet they seem to have frittered it away. And the legacy issues are just something else where there's no, no sense of direction there uh, from the DUP in any way. Yeah, I've, I've been writing extensively um, recently about the the constant failures of Stormont and just how little it's achieved over the years. And I suppose you've, you've mentioned um, some of the, the more kind of notable moments, um, Jim Allister managing to sort of constrain who you could appoint as a SPAD, John McAllister in opposition and something about caravans, if I can't if I recall correctly. And I mean, uh, I'm, I'm being facetious, of course, but in terms of the big issues, we've spoken on this podcast many times, the, the big reforms that needed to happen with health uh, haven't happened. Education, we've still got so many uh, empty school desks and nothing's been done about that because it's a bit of a tricky issue and all of these things. And we've still got this attitude that really, the minister's uh, job is to 
grasp money for their department and you know sort of make a few spending um announcements and well, the veracity of those you can you can believe or not believe depending on how kind of gullible you are in terms of actually getting to grips with those health and education issues or the long kind of the long standing issues with the productivity and poor performance in in the civil service and public sector automation all of these kind of things and and you've done a a, a lot of work too on, on the infrastructure and the fact that we've got a uh, an inad- inadequate infrastructure that holds back yeah. growth and everything else. None of these things have been solved. And m- more than that, I don't have any kind of confidence that they'll even the subject will even really be broached properly ahead of the next election. So is it any wonder that people are getting disillusioned with what's been going on and with the parties who've been in charge of this. Maybe it's time for somebody new to have another go, they're, they're thinking. I happen to think that even that won't make any difference because the system is just a, a contributor in itself. It, we, we talk about this. I mean, really, yes. Is, is there anything to be achieved for unionism by bringing down Stormont? Perhaps not. But why, did, why on earth did unionists rush back into the new, new decade, new approach? agreement when that was being negotiated? Why did the the DUP let themselves be blamed for three or four years of Sinn Féin refusing to share power? Of course, it's a fair question to ask, well, where, where would we get to by actually collapsing this uh, place and not having it anymore? But it's also a fair question to ask what it's achieved and why we're so keen to get it back up and running again when it's not working. Because I think the thing that would have done Northern Ireland the most good of all is if the government had had the guts to give it a sharp shock of direct rule for a, a series of you know two or three years and uh, get a lot of these things sorted that have been sitting in the back burner for years where everybody knows what needs to happen, but nobody has the guts to, to carry it through. Well, just a little reminder that the SNP devolved government in Scotland isn't doing much better. Uh, you know, it, it similarly is is storing up its problems and just hoping that Westminster bails it out in in the future with its own series of overspends and and catastrophic spending. Uh, I mean, I think there is a fundamental issue in devolution that we're just not uh, sometimes prepared to face up to. That the politicians in devolved governments just don't seem to be very good at governing. Looking forward, next year there is an election. <laughs> I was going to say looking forward to the election, I'm not sure I am. We've now basically got six, eight months of electioneering uh, from now on. Uh, and that's obviously going to have an impact on what happens up at Storm and what happens over, over those months. Let, let's let's take a pitch. My, my, my view is unionism really has to, all the parties uh, have to really demonstrate uh, that they are capable of getting on top of top of the agenda and maybe even see some control of parts of the agenda uh, because if they can't do that uh, then there is going to be a big question within unionist electorate as to whether whether or not why not just put their oar against Jim Alistair they may not like everything he says but why not just go for it because he's not them sometimes the negative can just be used to to punish the the, the, the rest uh, within nationalism, I have no idea what's going on in there, uh, but they seem to be just in status, uh, just sitting back, uh, waiting for a united Ireland that isn't going to come. 
I have no doubt Sinn Féin will use these months to say whole bias will be first minister. But in all honesty, they have been in government for the past 10 years, 12 years. What have they actually delivered for anyone? Yes, and in the areas that are Sinn Féin um, strongholds, how has life improved there? Preside over many of the constituencies that are among the most impoverished in in uh, the country, and there's a certain um, sort of all, all the, the, there's almost uh, something to be gained by that because if you remain within the top uh, and within the lowest uh, percentage uh, in in terms of uh, poverty and, and all this kind of thing, then you get you know public money and, and, and uh, you get treated in a certain way and everything else, but it's a very uh, kind of reductive way of, of looking at things. And, and uh, that Sinn Féin leadership certainly hasn't brought pros- prosperity to any of the areas that, uh, that, that, it's, uh, that it's been in the ascendancy in. Well, quite. I just don't hear any debate within the nationalist community to the extent that there is within the unionist community. Uh, I think that uh, you know, every now and then unionism realigns it shakes itself out and starts again and I think it's stronger for doing that nationalism just seems to be unprepared uh, to change uh, which is its want but it's not exactly going to take the, take that community anywhere in real terms Well I think what it'll do is it'll continue this kind of um, quasi culture war trying to sort of distance Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom, trying to to sort of advance any kind of all-Ireland structure, no matter, you know, with the merits of that or, or otherwise. But I mean, that's not actually going to deliver for people in terms of their daily lives. It's just, it's a, a long and ultimately fruitless, uh, fruitless quest to, to sort of um, make Northern Ireland not work and not, work. not to anybody's benefit. Okay. Um, I mean, I think it was a, a good chance to catch up after the summer. Uh, and we'll come back again as we merge into the autumn and Stormer gets back up and running and we'll see if anything has changed. Absolutely.